Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Even if you're not a mom, you owe your life to somebody. Somebody went through a lot of trouble to get you here. How many know what I'm talking about? Some went through more trouble than others. All the ladies are saying, testify. By the way, none of you gals get credit for that. It is, none of you guys, sorry, all you gals uh, get credit. I, I saw a cartoon that reminded me of my wife. It is the truth of Mother's Day. Take a look at this cartoon that's coming up on the screen. There it is. See, that is how they do it. It is amazing. We discovered the secret. Guys, we want to honor you today. If you're here with your mom, we're excited. If you're here with us for the first time, we are excited. In fact, let's just hear it for our guests. If they happen to be here with us for the first time today, give them a North Point welcome. Now, I, I thought it would be fun of all the Sundays in the year to do this. I want to talk to you about the Bible's extraordinary super duper highly encouraging, high value and high perspective on women. Now, it was about five weeks ago that together we celebrated Easter, which is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the change maker. In fact, we did a whole series on how your life can be changed when his resurrection power comes into you. And I would encourage you, if you're just brand new to North Point, go back to our website online and take a look at that series. If you're looking for the power to change, God says you can change. And he really wants to move in your life. Now, it feels good to point out because we just had Easter right at the beginning that when you study the Gospels, did you know that there comes a place in the story of Jesus when unfortunately all of his male disciples forsake him? How many of you know that? They actually left him. And at that point, uh, long before the redemption of Peter, it was the women, did you know, that came first to the tomb? Come on, go girls. Turn to a lady and say, that's right. Um, they came first to the tomb. It was actually women who were the first to see the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. What's amazing to me, I want you to think about this, is that it was the women who were entrusted by Jesus with the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is amazing. They were the first ones to be sent to go bear witness. That's significant when you think all of Christianity itself hangs on the resurrection. In fact, I want you to think about this. It is women, go girls today, ladies, I'm talking to you. Guys, I love you too, but this is for the ladies today. Listen, it is the women who were the apostles to the original apostles. That is significant. And that's why I'm not surprised, by the way, that in the New Testament, Paul actually calls a woman named Junia an apostle, which I don't know how you get a higher role than apostolic in the first century church. Uh, but sure enough, uh, Junia was an apostle. And so right from the beginning, I want to give you some observations. Today's going to get a little heady, but it's because I want to talk to you about what the Bible really says about women. Because believe it or not, this is actually a controversial topic in uh, the church, even today, especially in North America. What is the woman's place in the church, in ministry, in leadership? I want to make some quick observations, then we're going to dive in. And today you will not leave without me even dealing with some of the more troubling texts that can confuse us and hang us up. But I want for you to write this down from the get-go. Grab your notes. Write this down. Number one, women were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. Now, I already said that, but it's worth noting that women weren't just the first to see the resurrected Jesus, but did you know they were also the last followers who remained visibly faithful to Jesus at the foot of the cross? Best we can tell, his very best friends who were men abandoned him, and yet the scripture says it was women who stuck around. And then Jesus appears to these women, and they were sent as, I already said this, but write it down, number two, they were sent as apostles to the apostles. Now, you're saying, man, Shane, you are going fast. We're going to get to Mother's Day lunch. 
I'm going to give you these first few points quickly. I'm going to spend a little more time on the last part of the message. But I just want you to see this. Listen, think about this. Jesus did not appear to women and say, hey, ladies, go find me some capable men that I can tell them so that they can share it. That is not what happens. Jesus appears to women, and he entrusts them and their testimony to say, I have risen. Go. So that Peter would be comforted. So that John would have hope. He sends women. By the way, lots of women were his followers and disciples. But if you'd write down this thirst Uh, Third point, because I think it establishes the foundation that we're going to talk about for a few minutes as we talk about our ladies today. The Gospels tell us that Jesus' own interaction with women was absolutely revolutionary, and that is not an understatement. Guys, when you study the Gospels in the life of Jesus, you will see that his interaction with women was mold-breaking in that culture. For example, I think of a particular woman who anointed the feet of Jesus. Anybody remember that story? He anointed the feet of Jesus, which was a priestly action. And some people got critical of her, and they said, why are you allowing this woman to do this to you, especially this woman, because apparently she had been involved in some sexual sin, so the religious people got all pious. Why are you doing this? What does Jesus say? He says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done something beautiful to me. Literally a priestly action. Only male priests were supposed to do that kind of anointing. And notice, Jesus accepts the anointing from a woman as legitimate in the first century. That is explosive. Even when criticism comes. In fact, look at what it says. After it says, why are you bothering this woman? Let's go to the next verse, verse 12. It says, when she poured perfume on his body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say, Whenever the gospels preach throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's gonna be remembered and rehearsed. Let me give you another example. How many of you remember the story of Mary and Martha? Anybody? Well, it says that on the journey that Jesus was taking, he had come to a village, just to catch you up if you don't remember it. It says there was a woman there named Martha who welcomed him. She had a sister named who? Mary. And Mary was where? It says she sat at the... And was, now if you grew up in church, you might have heard this story and you grew up with the idea that of course Martha was the active type because of course the scripture does say she was frantic, doesn't it? Let's go on. She was frantic with all the work to be done in the kitchen. Master, she said, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to give me a hand, she says. And what we think happens here in this story, by the way, if you're raised in churches, you think, well, Jesus is just affirming the importance of both, but he's given a little preference to Mary. But do you know what would be far more obvious to a reader of the first century, and even readers today in places like Turkey or the Middle East or other parts of the world, that when you see this phrase in the scripture, take a look at it, it says, Mary, let's read it again, underline it there, Mary, who sat at the master's feet and did what? Well, what you need to know first is what's explosive about this is that Mary is sitting with the men. She's not in the other room designated for the women. To sit at the master's feet meant she was sitting in the male section of the house, which would never be done. Now, it's a safe bet that that's really what bothered Martha because it left her with all the work to do in the kitchen. But moms, how many can relate to this, by the way? You're doing all the work. (laughs) 
But what's the problem here is that Mary cuts across, clean across the most basic social traditions because she's in the male part of the house. Can I, by the way, give you an equivalent in today's world? Imagine you were to invite me to stay in your house, and when it came to bedtime, I started putting my bedding up in your master bedroom where you and your you know, husband are. <laughs> Would that be socially awkward? Sure. Would I be violating a cultural norm? Sure, and you'd never come back to this church again. And you would be correct. Now, here's the point. Even today in our century, we have our own clear and unstated rules culturally about who goes where, about whose space is which, don't we? And my point is, so did they. And what a first century reader would have understood is that, Mary, you're breaking the rules. Now, here's what's even more shocking, is that Jesus not only notices she breaks the rules, Jesus says, Mary, you're right to do it. And he affirms her. Notice what he says, the last line, I've underlined it for you, it says, and this will not be taken away from her. Now, here's the point that I'm getting to, friends, listen to me, because I want to talk to women today, and I want to talk to you about the controversial topic, again, of women in ministry, particularly. But what I need you to see in the New Testament is that Jesus begins to raise such a standard for women. Let me give you a couple of other quick examples. I want to do this quickly because I've got a lot to cover. I didn't even finish at the 8 a.m. I told Mike to give him the fifth point. I ran over here. So I want to move faster for you so you can get to that Mother's Day lunch. But let me give you an example here. When Jesus talks about divorce in Scripture, both in uh, Matthew 5 and in Mark 10, you can look that up later, Did you know when he talks about divorce, I've said this before, he did it for the sake of women? After all, it was only men who could get a divorce. Women weren't allowed in the first century to divorce. Only men could give the certificate. And so when he talks about this, he's talking about these women. He's saying, don't just divorce a woman woman because she burnt the dinner. Don't just divorce a, a woman because she's not making you happy anymore because in the first century, men would just dismiss their wives for the most trivial reasons. And what God was saying in that passage is men, you need to honor your covenant to women because divorce was too easy. Another example, did you know when Paul talks about being single, how revolutionary is what he said for women? For example, let's look at this one. I did put this in your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, Now to the unmarried and to the who? To the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay what? Stop right there for just a minute. Stay unmarried. In the first century, you couldn't even be a citizen unless you were married to a man. And yet Paul is writing to women and he's saying, marriage, meh. Ladies, you don't need to be married if you don't want to. In other words, this is what was mind-blowing. He's saying it has been said that your identity is tied to a man. No, it's not. Your identity is in me. Let me give you another example. See, a lot of people, when we don't understand the cultural context of why things are written, then it's easy to get kind of caught up and confused about why it's saying what it's saying. Let me give you another. Earlier in that letter, Paul's talking about sexual immorality. He's clearly talking in large part for the benefit of women. This is going to blow your mind. Are you ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. Ready. All right, what does he say? Check this out. He says, now for the matters I wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his what? with his own wife. We'll come back to that. And each woman with her what? Own husband. 
The husband ought to fulfill his married duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, do you know why this is so significant in pagan culture? We're going to stop right there for a minute. It was because in pagan culture, it was not uncommon for the average man to be having sex with three or four people at the same time. That was culturally acceptable. In fact, every man in first century had basically this approach. Every man would have his wife, and your wife was to be a respectable woman. Your wife would be the woman who brought money into the household through a dowry. Your wife would be the one who managed your affairs. Your wife would be the legitimate heir of your children, or would produce legitimate heirs for your estate. By the way, it's what in the Greek we call gine. That's what a wife is. But Men did not just have their wives in a socially acceptable way. Men also, the average man, also had their mistress, and this was the norm. Now, a mistress is not what you think it is today. The Greek word for this is hetera. And the hetera was somebody that you had sex with, of course, but they were meant to be your intellectual equal. In other words, your wife didn't have to be your intellectual equal. They just had to work for you and take care of the house. They got you status. They got you money. They were, your wife was somebody who kept you in a good place in society. Oh, but your mistress. Well, you know who your mistress was. Your mistress was your recreational partner. They provided you with intellectual stimulation. They became your best friend. Oh, and then there's sex too. Now, some of the men in here are going, wives and mistresses, what is that? But I just want to say to you, that's not all. Almost every man had what was called their palakas. You're like, what's the palakas? Well, it's a concubine. And that was a servant that you had sex with all the time. And by the way, on top of that, your average man had prostitutes. So what I'm saying to you, in the culture in which Paul is writing this, it was normal for men to have three or four sexual partners at one time, three or four women, but they were responsible to none of them. In other words, the man would say in this day and age, well, that one's my friend, that one's my wife, that one's my caretaker, this one's my sex toy. Do you know what Paul's saying in this text? He's looking at men and he's saying, brothers, we are done with that. Your wife, you are going to have sex with one woman and that woman is going to be your wife. And by the way, the scripture goes on and it says here, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his who? His wife. By the way, Romans thought this was absolutely crazy. I've quoted this so many times to you, the Roman historian, the Roman emperor that was observing Christianity, he says these Christians are crazy. They share their table with all, meaning their, their food and their money, but they don't share their bed with all. They couldn't understand the sex ethic. One woman? It was blowing them away. And then he says, don't deprive each other except if you give yourself to prayer. Oh my. Let's just go back to just a minute to Jesus. I was just talking to you about Paul's writing. Let's go back to Jesus. The Bible says that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Do you know what the phrase means to sit at the feet? It's literally a term. Well, hey, well let, me, let me go this way. I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, we tend to think that this is a picture of a woman gazing adoringly up at Jesus, sitting at his feet. What a wonderful teacher. Now, that probably is true to some extent, but that's not the extent of it. No, no, no. In the first century, to sit at the feet of a rabbi was a way of saying, you get to be a student to the rabbi. 
When it says Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, what it's saying is, is that this woman got to learn like a man. Something until that point was only reserved for men. And yet this woman, now, in this first century, very practical world, the ancient world, to be clear, these ladies would not do that. And by the way, it's not like today, like ladies today and men today, they'll go to city college or they'll go to school because they just want to enlighten their own mind. It may not be connected to a career. They just want to take some classes here and there. That's not what happened here. If you were going to sit at the feet of a rabbi, you would only do it in order to become a rabbi. That's the reason you learn. Now, I'm telling you, no first century reader would have missed the point. They would have understood that completely. Are you getting the idea? By the way, when we talk about women and women's place and women in ministry, this is why I love Romans chapter 16. A lot of you have, may not have even read that or noticed that you've read it, but let me read you a line here. Romans 16, 7, it says, make sure that my relatives, Andronicus and who? Junia is honored, for they are my fellow captives who bear the distinctive mark of being outstanding and well-known what? Junia, by the way, is a female. Isn't that interesting? That here you have Paul identifying an outstanding apostle who's a lady. By the way, I don't know how you get a higher role in the first century church than an apostle. Best we can tell from history, it was a higher role than pastors. Not like today, but it was apostles who appointed pastors. Now, by the way, I used to think that this was one of the most boring chapters in the Bible, and now I love it because I see how explosive it is. Junia is an apostle? Now, some of you are sitting there and going, well, that can't be right. Well, I'm telling you, it is. I, I really would love for you to study it. But then if that weren't enough, let's go back to Romans chapter 16. We're doing some Bible study today. Is this cool? Let's go back to Romans chapter 16. He says, I commend to you our sister, what's her name? Phoebe, she's a deacon in the church. He says, I ask that you receive her in the Lord. Why? Because Phoebe was the one who carried the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. And if you know anything about letter carriers in the first century, the one who carried the letter is the one who read the letter in the seat of Moses and is the one who gave comment about the letter, which means he sent this with a businesswoman named Phoebe who taught in the church. That is a significant thing. Which leads us to the fourth point. I want you to write this down, ladies, because today is your day. Paul was very comfortable encouraging and endorsing female leadership within the church. Some of you, I'm blowing your mind right now, and you're already thinking of scriptures that you want to use toward me. It's like we're going to have a Bible fight. And I just want to say, I'm going to get to those in just a minute. But I want to establish for you that if you read the scriptures in a first century context historically, there are answers to some of the most difficult questions. And it tells you just how revolutionary what Jesus was doing here with ladies. Remember, by the way, before Paul was Paul and his name was Saul? It says about him, notice this in Acts chapter 9, it says, Saul wanted to capture all of the believers he found. Notice who it says, both men and who? Now, I find that interesting because if women had no place in leadership in the church, why does he want to hunt them down? But in fact, if you read all of the church fathers, if you read all of church history, you see women named after name after name after name of ladies who were followers of Jesus going all the way back to the first century. And I'm going to say it makes sense 
Because Joel's prophecy about what would happen, the signs of the new covenant, what does he say? He says, here's what's gonna happen when Jesus comes. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people at the beginning of the church. This is Acts chapter two. And he says, your sons and your what? Daughters will prophesy. What does it mean to prophesy? It means to speak the words of God. So some of you are sitting there, and I'm 20 minutes in, and I'm establishing for you a trajectory of both the Old and the New Testament and how revolutionary Jesus was. But some of you would say, but I still struggle with some of what the New Testament says. And I'm taking time to do this, by the way, because I've met women who refuse to step foot in a church today because they think the Bible is chauvinistic. Or they think, gosh, you know, that's so old-fashioned. No, 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 Jesus was revolutionary. And so is the scripture. So you say, well, what do I do with the troubling or different passages that seem to oppose this today? I want to cover some of those with you because for people even today, I understand that the struggle comes from an honest desire in people's hearts to be faithful to the word of God, which I commend. I think that's amazing. Even women who'd say, man, I'm struggling with this. Well, it's because you want to be faithful to the word of God. By the way, of all, I've only used some scriptures today. There are many, many, many scriptures that endorse female leadership that sometimes we pass over. But do you know there are only two scriptures in all of the Bible that seems to call into question what I'm saying? In North America, a lot of pastors have hung their hat on it, but I just want to walk through those a little bit. If we can just do that, because we want to stay, we want to stay true to the Word of God. But let's just start with 1 Corinthians 14. Are you ready? 1 Corinthians 14, let's start there. It says, let's all read it together. Women should remain in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. By the way, do you think we'd have anybody here if we actually did that? <laughs> in fact, I don't know a church that actually follows that. I know churches that at best, most conservatively say a woman is not allowed to teach from the stage, but women are to stay silent in the church? but they are to be in submission, as the law says. Now, why is Paul writing this, do you think? Let's keep going here. It says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own who? At home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to do what? Now, let me just start here by saying there is an enormous amount of work that's been done in Corinthians that you just got to take a look at specifically as it relates to the culture of the first century. And if you understand this, you'll always get to, I think that you would agree, that one of the things you've got to admit that if we were to take this passage literal, meaning as it's, as it's shared in English, but if we were to take it literally in English as we read it, we'd have far bigger problems, for example, than female pastors. By the way, this passage isn't even talking about female pastors at all. It's just talking about women talking in church and women in leadership roles. But if you take it literally, it's like they have to keep completely silent. And again, show me a church that actually does that. So you've got to ask yourself a question. Is there a cultural historical reason? What's the background? How would the original readers of the Bible have taken this? Because, guys, one of the things, we talk about the, that there is a real interpretation. It's not just any way you want to interpret it. One of the things that you have to do when you study the Bible is you have to say, okay, well, what is the culture? What's the language barrier? 
What's the history of this thing? What's behind it? What are the idioms? What are the metaphors? What are the analogies? What's the context of the passage itself? In other words, here's what I'm saying to you. You ready? Let's get real and honest. Before, you're, before you say, how does this Bible verse apply to me, you should be asking, how does this Bible verse apply to them? How would they have taken it? Once you have that meaning, then you say, how does that meaning apply to me? Because it is a bit different sometimes. You have to get to the meaning of the text. Let me give you some examples. Let's imagine we all walked outside onto the patio and we were all looking at, you know, Palo Alto or some other street out there. And I said to you guys, that car just flew by. What would I mean by that? What's that? Yeah, that the car was going fast. Now imagine somebody was to write that down, put it in a hole in the ground, and we were to dig it up 2,000 years later. What would somebody think? Well, I'm telling you, they had flying cars then because it says right here. Now, I am telling you, that is the equivalent. I say that in jest, kind of jokingly, but that is the equivalent of what a lot of Bible teachers do today in its translation to English. Let me give you another example. And this is just, we're just doing seminary 101. How do you interpret the Bible? Are you ready? Let's say that, you know, uh, you, you know, here, here's, a tr here's a truth for many of us today. This is, this is a truth for me. Every time I leave church on Sundays, it is my tradition under the Lord to once I leave church and say goodbye to everybody, I go home and I hit the sack. Now, what do I mean by that? Sorry, I can't hear you. What? Oh, I go home and take a nap. You understand that today, don't you? But I'm going to tell you, again, if I were to write that down, put it in a cave, and somebody were to discover it 2,000 years later, you can imagine in the churches, as people leave, they're required to punch a sack. <laughs> now, I'm just giving you biblical exegesis 101. So you'd say, well, what does this passage really mean? Well, I'm thinking, for example, of New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. I was listening to him speak in the Middle East. And he was describing this particular passage, and he says, for example... It was taken for granted that men and women, number one, would sit apart in church, as sometimes happens today. By the way, if you go to our churches in India, it sometimes is like that, where the women will sit on one side and the men will sit on the other. But N.T. Wright goes on, New Testament scholar, he says, equally important, the service would be held in Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, but it would always be done in formal Arabic, which all the men would know, but in the first century, not many of the women would actually know. They would only speak their local dialect. Now, he points out, you and I today might disprove of such an arrangement, but you understand this is the way culture is. You can't take the community out of what's being said. So he says this, the result would be that during a sermon in particular, the woman not understanding what was going on would begin to get bored and the women on their side would begin to talk among themselves. And he begins to describe this kind of a scene in the church. And he says, the level of talking from the women's side would steadily rise in volume until the minister would finally have to say, will the women please be quiet? Whereupon the talking would die down for just a few minutes before it raised back up again. At some point, the minister might have to say, ladies, if you don't understand, go home and ask your husbands. They'll tell you what's being said here because they did understand the language. Now, do you see my point now you'd say, are you kidding me? Shane, are you saying we actually have to read the Bible in its context? Yes. I'm not twisting the scripture. I'm actually asking you to read it as the reader would have read it. 
And does history matter? Sure. In fact, I love it. When I was in college, I decided I can't just be a theology major, I have to be a history major. Because I know theology and history go hand in hand. And you have to use... So, Shane, are you saying that we can't just read it and just apply it immediately, that it doesn't always... I mean, yes, sometimes you have to study. And, and, and obviously, I'm joking around, but you know, there is something that Steve said to the pastors years ago, and I want to point it out to you. By the way, this is a seminary class that I'm giving you for free right now. You ready? Here's an interpretive rule that Steve mentioned to us pastors years ago, but it really is true. When you're reading the Bible, you need to understand the Bible doesn't always say what it means, meaning that you read it, and it's saying something, but there's a lot more meaning there than you get. I gave you lots of examples of that a few moments ago. There is so much more meaning than you're getting if you understand the culture. The Bible doesn't always say what it means, and the Bible doesn't always mean what it says. So you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, sometimes you're reading it, and you're going, but it says right here! But you're not taking into consideration history, culture, a dead language of 2,000 years at least. And so you're having to go back and do a little history to figure it out. But notice, the Bible always means what it means, which means you weigh the evidence and you say, what is the most reasonable conclusion I can come to? But let me tell you what Paul can't mean. Some of you were saying, yeah, but it says in 1 Corinthians 14 that women have to be quiet and they shouldn't speak in church. Yeah, but can't you see that way back, take a look in chapter 11... Let's just go back to it, put it up on the screen for everybody. Chapter 11, Paul says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, let's just set aside the dress code for a minute. Do you see the contradiction? In 11, he's saying women do get to prophesy and speak. Now in 14, he's saying they shouldn't speak. What should that lead you to? It should lead you to saying, there must be a reason for this that's not clear to me. So I'm going to give it a really good and hard look. Does that make sense? And that's what I'm saying we do with the Bible. By the way, a lot of guys that I know that will say, well, a woman shouldn't speak. It says right there. Then I just want to say, well, then how come you don't have a dress code in your church? How come some don't have their heads covered and others do? And you know what that pastor will say to me typically is? They'll say, well, that was cultural. Well, why do you pick that part as cultural and not this part? Do you guys see where I'm going? By the way, this is why I love it, because this is the same letter. I love it that we have a Bible Institute here. And if there was ever a plug for you to join our Bible Institute, which, by the way, this is it. And by the way, it's, at, it's either free or it's such a low cost. But I mean, four years of you get to learn how to interpret the Bible. This is why, by the way, next weekend we have a meeting for all of you that want to join us and go to Israel. Because we do that trip annually so that you can learn the history. Because culture matters and history matters. This is a powerful thing. We can't forget the subtle assumptions or pressures or constraints, the way people dress, wear their hair, speak. Listen to me. Can I ask you this question? Would a man in today's culture, would a man go to a uh, dinner party wearing a bathing suit? Would that happen? No. Would a woman attend a beach picnic wearing a wedding dress? No. Not unless she's getting married at the picnic. You see my point. There are dynamics of the situation which is what historians do based on the evidence. They look. Okay, so let's jump real quick. Troubling text, you ready? 
First Timothy 2, particularly this passage, verse 12. This is held up as a prime example for lots of folks. Here we go, you ready? It says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without what? And he says, I also want the women to dress what? With and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Shame on you ladies that wore any of that today. But how should you adorn yourselves? Adorn yourselves with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then here we go. These are the kickers. You ready? Brace yourselves. A woman should learn in and... I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. Uh Uh-oh. It was the woman who was deceived and became a what? But women will be saved through what? If they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and with all propriety. So, people look at this scripture, and what they will say is, women shouldn't be teachers or hold any authority over men. And they'd say, see, this repeats what Corinthians says. They have to keep silent. And then people want to suggest that this or the New Testament forbids the ordination of women. Now, by the way, all cards on the table here. If you've been around here for a while, you know that we ordain women here. I am going to tell you that good friends of mine have left the church over this. But here's what's crazy to me. If you interpret the passage the way that they are, and you're honest... This whole passage seems to be saying that women are considered second-class citizens at every level. In fact, the scripture says, ladies, you can't even dress prettily, can you? You can't do that because you're the daughters of Eve. And she was the original troublemaker, after all. It says, did I just make that up? No, it says, it was the woman who was deceived and became a what? A sinner. But, ladies, there is hope if you have kids. The woman will be saved through what? If they... Now, guys, here's what I'm saying to you. If anybody reads the scripture this way and just says, well, it says it right here without study, there's a problem. But there's a much bigger problem than female pastors because if I follow the scripture without taking into account history and culture or context, do you understand My problem is not female pastors. My problem is is that this completely contradicts salvation by grace alone through faith. If I follow what the scripture's actually saying, it means that women are saved through childbearing? Wait a minute. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Some of you right now are saying, well, you don't apply that part. Well, what makes you decide that's not the part? And the other part is. No. Don't you see? See, I think the key to the whole passage is recognizing Paul is commanding. Here's what he's saying, interpreted rightly. Women should be allowed to study and learn, and they should not be restrained to do so. Now, let me show you what I mean. You ready? Everybody, I put something to help you in your um, notes. If you take a look at it. It's this little handout right here. And I just want to say to you that uh, it's double-sided. I've put a lot of information on here. But one of the bits of information that I wanted to give you is, from the original Greek, how this could be translated. 
And I'm not gonna go through it now because I don't have the time, but I will say this to you. If you study it, you're gonna see that, oh my goodness, you could translate directly from the Greek so differently. Now, some of you are saying to me, well, why can it be translated so differently? Let me tell you why very as quickly as I can. The English Bibles that we use today, they are all translated by different groups of scholars that have their own strong opinions. Now, by the way, this is one of the reasons I love North Point. Does North Point use any single translation? No. What do we do? We use all of them. Do you want to know why we use all of them? Because we're trying to get to the truth. By the way, I laugh at people who say, well, it can only be the King James, or it can only be the ESV, or it can only be the NASB. That makes me chuckle, because I'm thinking to myself, you realize you're trusting a group of 10 dudes that you've never met. They're the ones that chose to translate it that way. See, what I'd rather do is, I'd rather go to these 10 dudes and these 10 dudes and these 10 dudes and these five guys. You get my point? And I'd rather look at the language myself and I'd rather try to come to a conclusion of the truth. Did you know that some Bibles like the ESV or the NASB or, or the uh, New Revised Standard, these are good word-for-word -word translations, meaning they're translated word for word, as best as we can. But did you know that sometimes their translation is false because there's no word equivalent in the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic? Do you, you'd, you'd laugh if I told you there are times you can go to the message version and it's a better translation than the ESV. You say, how can that be? Because there's no word equivalent. So the better is to go to the phrase. Sometimes that's not true. What I'm saying is you go to all of it. And you use all of it. It just depends upon the Greek being used. But I handed this to you so you could study it. I want you to see that things can be translated differently. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this. A woman should learn in what? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, this is often taken to mean a woman should learn in submission to men or in submission to their husbands. But did you know from the Greek, it's equally as likely that it refers to their attitude as learners or disciples, meaning they should learn in submission to God as a learner, which by the way is true for men as well. We all learn in submission to God. I've studied multiple commentaries for the Greek on this, by the way. And in context, you know, this passage could be read this way. I'll just read it to you. It could be read, I don't mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that, that previously men held authority over women. Now, by the way, that Greek translation sounds so different than what you might read in, in your particular Bible at home, but I'm just going to say this. That makes more sense historically because do you know what was going on? When Paul wrote this to Timothy, Timothy was stationed in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, the leading religion was a cult to Artemis, or the Romans called her Diana, and it was a female-dominated religion. Acts tells us that there were lots of those people that were coming to know Jesus, and when a lot of people come to know Jesus and come into church for the first time, and they're used to a religion where the women dominate the conversation, you can see why Paul's saying, don't let the women dominate the conversation. But that is a cultural context. And we know that about the religion that was going on in Ephesus. So Paul's warning, warning, don't let it become so female-dominated like with the temple cult. What's the other parts of the passage? You ready? Check this out. Here we go. Look at this one. Stay with me for just a couple more minutes. It says, so this is what I want. The men should pray in every place, lifting up what? 
without anger or disputing. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's giving stereotypes about men. He's saying, guys, don't argue. These are the things we expect men to do. Guys, stop arguing, stop fighting. Men, don't raise your voice. But what's he doing in verse nine? He's saying in the same way, say to the women, don't clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves in an appropriate manner, modesty, sensibly. He's talking about the hairdos, the jewelry, the fancy clothes. What's he doing there? He's dealing with stereotypes about men and he's dealing with stereotypes about women. And what he's saying is, men, women, you should all be free from the stereotypes. And then he says, but let women study and be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. Now, somebody says, well, what's the final stuff here that we can't ignore? Somebody says, well, what about Adam and Eve? Remember, his basic point here is that women would be allowed to learn. And so what he's saying here, notice he says, look what happened. The story of Adam and Eve that's making the point. It says, it was the woman who was deceived and became a what? A sinner. What he's saying is, let the women learn. It was the woman, after all, who was deceived. See, women weren't used to learning at this point. Women need to learn as much as men do. By the way, who's really at fault? The woman was deceived, but who, who wasn't deceived and chose wrong anyway? Adam sinned deliberately. He knew what he was doing, but he did it anyway. Now, what about childbirth? I'll be honest. I can't say that I think that Paul was using childbirth as a punishment or to say women are only saved, that would contradict all the other scripture. Can I give you a rule of interpretation? You always use what's clear in scripture to help you interpret what is not clear in scripture. So I think he's offering an assurance that even through childbearing, though it's hard and difficult, even dangerous, we're celebrating Mother's Day. Thank you, ladies, for going through it for us. But especially in ancient days, it is the most testing moment of a woman's life. But he's saying it's not a curse. He's saying now, even though you're going to go through exorbitant pain, which is a sign of God's judgment, it's the result of sin. What's Paul saying? He's saying God is going to provide you deliverance through it, salvation through it, even though it's the result, that pain is the result of the curse of sin. Keep following Jesus with faith and love and prudence and holiness. Guys, see what I'm doing here? I'm saying to you that I think we should read a text like that as it was intended, as a way of building up God's church, men and women, women and men alike, while he's also addressing a particular cultural situation. So write down this fifth point, because I think we've said enough to kind of show you. What's the bottom line here? Write this down. Ultimately, what the scripture teaches us and what Jesus came was to bring his new kingdom and that you would have a new kingdom family in which we put away all of the religious and worldly distinctions that separate us. He's saying you're a part of a new family and your identity is now wrapped up in that. And that's why Paul says, by the way, in Galatians chapter three, take a look. He says, there is no longer Jew Everybody with me, let's read it together. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no male and female. You are all one in the Messiah, Jesus. And if you belong to the Messiah, you are Abraham's family. You stand to inherit the promise. That is amazing. So I just say to you, what do I want you to celebrate on this Mother's Day? 
That is that God came to do something revolutionary. And he sent his son Jesus to do something new and revolutionary that we wouldn't be trapped in old religion, but that we'd say, God, I want you to work in your family like you intended to. Let me pray for you. Sound good? Father, thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you for your work in the family of God. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to absorb such a quantity of information. But Lord, it's because we want to put confidence in your word. We want to see through the loopholes that people use in the, in the, and, the, and the things that people will say, well, I can't trust it because of this. We can trust it. But Lord, help us to read it as it was intended. Know that you inspired it for our good. God, I pray you'd bless people today. If there's someone here that doesn't know you, but Lord, they'd put their faith in you as a result of being able to trust your word. And we give you praise in Jesus' name.